0: Well, today is the first Sunday of the month, and what that means is that we have a new Read It selection for you and a new uh, nation to consider, to pray for, in terms of world missions. I want to begin with the Read It selection by drawing your attention to the flyer that is in your bulletin. Now. I know that many of you are aware that I have several significant uh, men who have influenced my life, and uh, many of you give me a hard time about that because most of them are dead. And many of them have been dead for hundreds of years. I do want to encourage you, though, and, and have you realize that a few of the men who have influenced my life are still alive. One of those men is, and he is by far one of the most influential men in my life, both theologically and in terms of his, his preaching gift, and his name is Dr. Stephen Lawson. I will have the opportunity to spend three days with Dr. Lawson next week in a, an expository preaching seminar in a Olympia, and let me just say I'm just a little bit excited about that time. As Steve Nim said, get ready, because when I get back, I'm going to be in fuego. So the book that I want to recommend this month is a book by Dr. Lawson entitled The Moment of Truth. Now, I do not have A physical copy of the book, nor did I purchase any uh, to make available for you. The reason for that is, first of all, I have it on Kindle. The second reason I don't have any physical copies is it's a little bit spendy. It's about a seventeen dollar book. It's a small paperback book. I think it's a little overpriced, and so I want to encourage you to look into the Kindle edition of this book. Now, I can already hear some of the objections, Pastor. I don't have a Kindle. Well, you can purchase this book on Kindle and. Read it on your computer. But while we're on that subject, if you don't have a Kindle, I would highly recommend that you pick up a Kindle. They are so affordable now. Uh, it, it is just a tool that everyone in my family has one. Talk to Leona if you're not convinced of the Kindle. Leona, would you say everyone needs to get a Kindle? And I would say everyone needs to get this book by Dr. Lawson. It is a book about the nature of truth. You can read more about that on your own, but I commend that to you. The nation I want to focus on this morning for just a moment is the nation of Thailand. Thailand, and I know what some of you are thinking about this one. Ah, he likes Thai food. We're going to focus on Thailand. You got that exactly right. Thailand is a country capital. Uh, The city of Bangkok is the capital. A little bit about the economy. They're a a company, a country that is a a strong country when it comes to exports. They, uh, They export textiles and shrimp and sugar and rubber, things like electronics. They are the largest rice exporter in the world. This little nation is the largest rice exporter in the world. Politics, they uh, operate under a constitutional monarchy. And I should tell you, and many of you are probably familiar with this, there is a fair amount of corruption in Thailand. Freedom of religion is guaranteed in in Thailand, according to their constitution. I should also tell you that 85% of the country is under the, the thumb of Buddhism. 8% of the country are Muslims, and here's where we come in. 1% of Thailand is evangelical Christian. 1% of that nation. And so my plea this morning is we would join together this month and pray for the country of Thailand. Here's some specific prayer needs. And you can pick up a flyer as you leave this morning to learn more about this. The eradication of the drug and sex trafficking industry. This is a massive problem in Thailand that you need to be aware of. I read a... Uh, a novel about the uh, the trafficking industry, most notably the sex trafficking industry in Thailand, about three years ago, that literally made, made my blood boil. I learned so much in that book, and it, it really opened my eyes to this uh, very serious sin that 's taking place in Thailand. Uh, there is a need for solid orthodox leadership in the church in Thailand, obviously for more christians to to uh, Uh, come uh, to uh, the the leadership table and build the church in that country, and also as an outreach to people trapped in Buddhism. And so there is a need not only to pray, but there is a need to go. There is a need for people to share the gospel in Thailand. And so we want to do that right now before we open God's word. Let's pray. Father, we want to lift up this little country to you, this country that has a, a strong economy. And hardworking people, but so many millions upon millions of people who are trapped by Buddhism and Islam and other world religions, God. We pray that you would send missionaries to this little country, that the church would be planted, that believers would be raised up, that that pastors and and elders and deacons would would lead with integrity, that the Word of God would shine brightly in this very dark place. God, show us as a church what we can do, what small role we can play when it comes to reaching out to, to this country. I pray that if students meet... ...people that have come from Thailand, immigrants from Thailand, that they would reach out to them and share the gospel of grace with them. That we would be lights here, even in our communities, we reach out to these dear people that you love. We lift this country up to you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to turn once again this morning to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians, chapter 4. The year was 1976. When Francis Schaeffer penned his well-known book, How Should We Then Live? I know many of you have read that book. Dr. Schaeffer begins the book by describing one of the reasons that the Christians were put to death in ancient Rome. And here is what he says. He says, no totalitarian authority nor authoritarian state can tolerate those who have an absolute by which to judge that state and its actions. The Christians had that absolute in God's revelation. Because the Christians had an absolute, and what Schaefer refers to as an absolute truth, Truth with a capital T, as Schaeffer was known for saying, because they had that absolute universal standard by which to judge not only personal morals, but also the state, they were counted as enemies of totalitarian Rome and were thrown to the beasts. Why were the Christians executed? Why were they thrown to the beast? In large measure, Schaefer reminds us, because they believed in absolute truth. 2,000 years later, where we stand today, as Christians, we continue, as the early believers did, to hold fast to the absolute truth of God's written revelation. And while it is true that we may not be thrown to the beast's, The pagan worldly system that surrounds us, that we are a part of, continue to mock us. They continue to malign us. Why? For holding truth very seriously. For holding fast to the written revelation of God's word. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 25 to 32 is an absolutely remarkable example of what it means to live a new life. All to the glory of God, in the city of God, as we have described over the last several weeks. In fact, in the Greek text that I study with to prepare sermons, the heading, very interesting, the heading of the section that we have been walking through, Ephesians four twenty-five to 32, is marked with these words. Rules for the new life. Rules for the new life. So last week we discovered the first of these rules for the new life, what I've described as the, the living in the city of God. The first rule was this, is we learn the importance of being a Christian who is absolutely committed to the truth. We learn this, that God is calling each one of us who are Christ followers to speak the truth to everyone. Sometimes it's difficult to speak the truth, isn't it? Sometimes the person who you communicate truth to doesn't want to hear the truth. A commitment to the truth, we learned, is important because our God is a God of truth. We learned that a commitment to the truth is important because truth, you see, is a reflection of who God is. Truth is a reflection of the character and the nature of God. Now, as we move forward in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, Paul the Apostle continues now to unpack what we're calling the rules of the new life. That includes, of course, the the first century Christians, those believers he is writing to in the city of Ephesus, and every subsequent, subsequent Christian, that is, you and I, if we are followers of Christ. And so we move this morning from a commitment to the truth to having controlled emotions. I want to have you look with me at Ephesians 4, and if you would be so kind to stand to your feet as we read verses 26 and 27 out of respect for the authority of God's Word. This is God's Word. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, before we take a a very concentrated dive into this passage, I want to reemphasize a a point of of vital importance. Namely, this morning, do we emphasize the, the indicatives... Or do we emphasize the imperatives? This is something that I broached last week, not only in the message, but also in our Veritas class, which should tell you that this is a subject that is, I believe, very important to the church. And it is, of course, very important to me. The question is whether we should emphasize the indicatives or the imperatives. The indicatives describe what God has done. What has God done for us in Christ? That would be a a great example of an indicative. The imperatives is just shorthand for a command. What is God calling us to do? And so I want to have a little bit of fun with you and maybe trick you a little bit. Do we emphasize the indicatives or the imperatives? There are some. In fact, a growing number of people say we emphasize the indicatives, In fact, there are some who say, we we don't even talk about the imperatives. We don't talk about the imperatives. And so here is the answer to the question. Do we emphasize the indicatives or the imperatives? The answer is, yes! Wow! You're getting it! We emphasize both. These are both very important in the Christian life. Kevin DeYoung says it like this, both the indicatives of Scripture "...and the imperatives are from God, for our good and given in grace." Now, ultimately, it is the indicatives, it is the knowing what God has done... ...that fuels our ability, that fuels our desire, that fuels our inclination to obey the imperatives. And so, may we, as Kevin DeYoung encourages glory in the indicatives think about this we glory in the indicatives and we insist on the imperatives that is something worth remembering this morning we glory in the indicatives we glory in what God has done but we don't stop there we insist on the imperatives Notice, then, this series of imperatives in our passage. Now, please remember, there are some who say, who insist that there are no imperatives in the New Testament. And this has always struck me as as very strange, and that is the understatement of the week. And the reason it strikes me as very strange is because in two verses... In two verses, we have four imperatives. Is anyone shocked by this? So read it with me. I have highlighted where in the Greek text we learn what is written in the imperative mood. Be angry. Now some of you are going, wait a minute. My children are here. The pastor is saying, be angry. I'm not saying it. God's saying it. Imperative number one is be angry and, there's a clarification, do not sin. And so we're going to see that, you might consider this to be two imperatives. I actually look at it as one. Be angry and do not sin. We have to have both. And then Paul goes on. Do not let the sun, the phrase go down is written in the imperative mood. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Imperative number three, imperative number four, and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, the title of the message this morning is our new life in the city of God Wow, what happened? Not committed emotions. I know many of you have committed emotions. Are you with me? Controlled emotions. Controlled emotions. I have to tell you, spell check didn't help a bit on that one. So be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down in your anger, give no opportunity to the devil. So our goal, as we shall see, is that emotions are used to glorify God instead of hindering His kingdom purposes. This morning, what you will find is that this will be a very personal sermon. Not necessarily to me, but from me to you. There will be some of you who will whisper in your husband's ear, Pastor has been reading my email. He saw that angry email that I sent to the manager of the department store. Or the husband will look at the wife and he'll say... The pastor has been looking in our dining room window. He saw me yell at the kids in anger. That's why we're going to see that the word of God is so powerfully relevant for the way that we live our lives. The topic of controlled emotions cuts across literally everything we do in life, everything we think in life, every way we respond to people, how we respond to friends. How we respond to family, how we respond to people in the church, how we respond to our leadership in the church, how we how we respond to employers, how we respond to teachers. This, this one's hard if you're an athlete, how we respond to the umpire How we respond to the referee, how we respond to police officers, how we respond to judges, and the list goes on and on and on. So here is the the big question I want you to consider. What does God expect of his citizens who live in the kingdom of God? So look with me at the, the four commandments for Christ followers that we've already seen in verses 26 and 27. I want to break this into three very important sections. The first of which is that I want you to see that these or this is a serious command. This is a very serious command. I've already kind of baited you by having you looked at, at, at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. You could say these are serious, in the plural, commands. I want to view this as one imperative be angry and do not sin. And this is what I believe God wants us to understand. Number one, our emotions. And before I finish the sentence, I should say that the way that many of us are wired, even when I say the word emotion, I, I can almost guarantee you there's a large segment of men. Who are going, here we go, emotions, and look over your wife and go, here we go, honey, hope you enjoy this, he's going to get us on the emotion thing again, I'm not feeling enough, I'm too angry, you would be exactly right. What God wants us to understand this morning is that our emotions must always glorify God. All of our emotions should glorify God. Paul says something that we've already seen that I have to confess sounds totally shocking and counterintuitive. He says, be angry and do not sin. Paul's words now, why don't you turn with me to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 4, verse 4. And I think it would be important for you to to gaze at these words for a moment. Because what Paul is doing, he's actually citing a passage from Psalm chapter 4. Look at Psalm 4, verse 4. Here's what David writes. Be angry... And do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Now, be angry and do not sin. We've already seen there are two imperatives there. It implies something. It implies something that, that really cuts against the grain of what most of us have been taught. Most of us have been taught with, you don't be angry, young man. Right? If something makes you angry, then it is certainly sin. That is what we have been taught. And that is not necessarily true. When David says in Psalm 4, and when Paul repeats the command in Ephesians chapter 4, be angry and do not sin, there's an implication there. There's something implied that it is possible, you see, to be angry And not sin. Now the word be angry, I want to just blow you away with some amazing Greek studies. The phrase be angry is translated as follows. Be angry. You've learned a little bit about Greek this morning. But it also means to arouse to wrath. Now, there are at least six wavelengths within what one writer refers to as the spectrum of sinful anger. And this is where it's going to get really, really personal because some of you are thinking, I don't have a problem with anger. Others of you are thinking, I don't have a problem with anger. You're going, ooh, okay, I believe you. Not really. Now, here, here's the, the, the various ways that anger, and this is not necessarily comprehensive, but I think it'll hit you right where you live. These are the ways that anger manifests itself. Number one, irritability. Ask yourself, have you ever been irritable? Irritability is what David Powelson refers to as anger on a hair trigger. Have you ever shot a gun that had a hair trigger? It's like, man, you touch it, boom, it's gone. That's what irritability is. Anger on a hair trigger. This describes the person who is just a grouch. And it is only a teeny, 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 teensy, tiny little circumstance that just, your whole day's ruined. That's irritability. There's another way that anger manifests itself, and that is arguing. Arguing or interpersonal friction. This involves two people who disagree on a given topic or situation. Another way that anger manifests itself is bitterness. This is, simply put, if you're wondering what bitterness is, and by the way, we'll look more about bitterness when we get down to verse 31. Because Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Interesting. We'll save that for a few weeks down the road. But bitterness is this it's simply anger that lasts a long time. Anger that lasts a long time. And you know what I've discovered about bitterness? It is it is so easy to pick out a bitter person. Let me illustrate it this way how many of you can figure out who the Seahawk fans are? You go to the mall, you go down to Bell's Fair Mall, and you're like, oh, there's a Seahawks fan. Hey Russell Wilson, how you doing? You know, he's got the jersey, right? And you know he's a Seahawks fan. You know who the Mariner fans are. It's like, I mean, it says Hernandez on the back of his jersey, right? You can also figure out, I mean, you walk to a mall and you can go, bitter person, bitter person, right? You, you watch these people in the checkout stands. Bitterness, it's anger that lasts a long time. It's a person who has a chip on his or her shoulder. Violence is another way that is a manifestation of anger. This is the overflow of anger. This kind of anger attacks and hurts and destroys and it even kills. A violent person finds pleasure in causing pain and destroying other people. Now, you might be here this morning and say, I would never do that. And I I would tend to agree, most people here would never even hurt a flea. But, when it comes to emotionally wounding someone, like, I will prove you wrong because you're an idiot. I will prove you wrong because you don't have much education. I will prove you wrong because you haven't thought through the argument. We'll do that at the drop of a hat. A violent person finds pleasure in causing pain and destroying other people, either their physical body or even their reputation. And if you've ever had someone who is violent in nature attack your reputation, you know that it is, it is one of the most hurtful things that anyone could ever do to you. Where they assign false motives to you. Where they tell people things about you that are not true. That is a manifestation of a violent person. Or there's passive anger that lurks in secret and pounces when you least expect it. You've experienced that with someone. You're dealing with a person who is very calm and collected. I found, actually, that most of the people that struggle with this are men, to be really, really honest. Calm and collected, just cool as a, as a clam, and then one day, it's just boom, it all explodes. Finally, self-righteous anger. This is a person who is preoccupied with me Myself and I. This person finds delight in expressing their opinion freely. It's their views, it's their likes, it's their dislikes. This is self-righteous anger. And so Paul, I believe, may have shocked the Ephesian believers when he said, even though they should have known it from Psalm 4, verse 4, I think he shocked them when he said, be angry. But he qualifies it now with that imperative, do not sin. You need to understand that there are clear cases in Scripture where one of God's people got angry, but they did in fact sin. Do you remember Jonah? He was the first person I thought of. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, we see that Jonah was angry with God's response to those wicked pagans, the Ninevites. That's chapter 3, verse 10. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And here's what the Bible says He was angry. Notice now what God says in Jonah 4, verse 4. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? It's as if God's saying, hey, Jonah, you don't have a case. Jonah, you don't know what you're talking about. And Jonah, you are committing a grievous sin. There's another example of an Old Testament saint who was angry but also sinned. David was angry at the Lord for the action he took when he struck down Uzzah. You remember the story in 2 Samuel chapter 6, where the Old Testament saints were very familiar with the command. What were they to do in regards to the Ark of the Covenant? There was a very specific command. You know, what shout it out. Don't touch it. Now, is that simple? Don't touch it. And so, as they put the, the Ark of the Covenant on these fancy poles, and as they, they walked, one of the people stumbled, you'll recall. And it's as if Uzzah, this man who likely struggled with self-righteousness, he maybe even had a good motivation for doing it. He didn't want the Ark of the Covenant to... To touch the mud. And so he reached out and he he secured it with his hand. And what did God do? He struck him down. And the Bible says in 2 Samuel 6, David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. David had no right to be angry. David, David, when he manifested this angry emotion, sinned before Almighty God. I wonder how often you and I display anger and sin like Jonah and like King David. We we sin with outbursts of anger against our friends or our our family. We sin when we when we shout at the driver in front of us, and I would be the very first person in the room to say, "Yep, I've done that." In fact, I you could ask my wife. I think I did it yesterday. I called the guy Slick. Usually when I'm mad, I'm like, "Slick, like, come on Slick," right? But we do that. We we sin when we grow irritated in the grocery line. I remember when my family moved to Le Grand. We moved from more of a more of a metropolitan area with lots of people to a city of, uh, of 12,000 in Le Grand. I remember the first remember the first couple of months in the grocery store. I mean, I was used to like like this at the grocery store, in Le Grand it's like this. Right? Like, lady, like, pick up the pace. And I I really had to come to terms with my attitude that I, I was growing irritable. I was irritated at these slow people. We sin when we direct our anger at God for failing to answer our very important prayer request or for refusing to turn a situation in our favor for our good. And so we need to recognize that our emotions must always glorify God. There's a second principle I want to share with you, and that is our emotions must always reflect the character of God. In order to accurately reflect the character of God, we need to be very sure that we understand what kind of a God it is that we worship. Now, unfortunately, the character of God, believe it or not, I I have to pinch myself when I talk about these things. The character of God is under attack, not by only the, the pagan world, not only by the unbelieving world, but the character of God is under attack these days by authors and pastors who call themselves Christian. They are content to remove anything and everything out of the the framework of who God is that has to do with wrath or anger. There is one writer. I read a book that, that he published just a few months ago, or a year or so ago, entitled Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Now, if you know me, you know why I was drawn to that title. Because one of the most important sermons in American history was penned by Jonathan Edwards, and it was entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And so the author's marketing technique, it it worked on me. I was wondering, what is this book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God? What is it all about? And so I requested a copy from the publisher to read and review, and here's one of the sentences from that book. Quote, there was a time when I thought the darkness of anger, violence, and retribution cast a sinister shadow on the face of God. But having learned to sit with Jesus in contemplative prayer, I have discovered by my own experience. And by the way, this is something I want to point out. I have discovered by my own experience. Does that raise a red flag in anyone's mind? Not I have discovered by written revelation. I have discovered through my experience, I have discovered through what I feel, is what he's saying, that what John said is true. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is the eternal light of self-giving love. Nothing wrong with that. But then he goes on. There is no darkness, no anger, no violence, no retribution, only love. Close quote. This writer, in less than 250 pages, systematically dismantles anything that has to do with the anger or the wrath of God. He, like Thomas Jefferson, basically Jefferson went to the New Testament and with a razor blade cut out every passage that dealt with a miracle of Jesus or the deity of Christ or the virgin birth of Jesus. This writer, who is a pastor basically, in so many words, does the same thing with a a fictional razor blade, a a make-believe razor blade. He goes through the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he eliminates anything and everything that has to do with the wrath or the anger of God. But please know that no amount of theological gymnastics can remove the fact that God is, Is a God of wrath. That God is angry with sinners. John Frame says. God's wrath is an outworking of his love. Once we understand God's love, we know it as tough love. One that respects God's standards of righteousness and that burns in jealousy against those who betray it. So God's wrath serves the purposes of His love and God's love is richer for it. It bestows on His beloved the ultimate blessing of a sin-free world. What John Frame is helping us to understand is that God's love and God's wrath are equal attributes. They are both a part of the nature of God. Now, there are some examples, and I only want to take you to a few passages to remind you that God displays His wrath, and God will continue to display His wrath. Very quickly, in Exodus 4, we read, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And we see that really throughout the Pentateuch. In Numbers chapter 11, the people complain. this is Israel complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, what are they doing? They're complaining, woe is me, God, why do you do this? Why do you do that? When the Lord heard about it, his anger was kindled. Numbers 11.10, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. Moses, Moses, I can't believe we have to be in this place. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. Numbers 11.33, well, this one's always blown me away. Because our our God is... Isn't He such a kind God? He's such a merciful God. He's a tender God. And He provides for our needs. And I know that everyone is still, every day, writing down one thing that you're thankful for. You're like, oh, I think I forgot that. If you forgot, today's the first day that you can start that again, right? I know many of you are doing it. But here's what we read. While the meat was yet between their teeth... Does that speak to you? While the meat was... I mean, they, had, they didn't have a toothpick. They didn't have any dental floss. While the, while the meat was still in their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a gr- very great plague. How about Nahum chapter 1? The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will by no means clear the guilty. Now, here's the typical response. Pastor, that was the... (laughs) wow you've heard it before right that was the old testament that was that was then but in the new testament god is no longer god of wrath he's only a god of love mark chapter 3 verse 5 and jesus looked around at them with anger grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man stretch out your hand he stretched it out and his hand was restored John chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. In the temple, Jesus found those who were selling ox and sheep and pigeons and money changers are sitting there. It's a flea market at the church. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take those things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now here is the takeaway. And this is four or five passages, and we could read... Dozens and dozens of passages like this in Scripture. The takeaway is that whenever God expresses anger, He never wants sins. Whenever God expresses wrath or anger, never once does he come close to committing sin. He is always in control. And so there's a third principle I want you to remember. That is that anger, and even as I typed this on my computer, I typed it and I looked at it and thought, is that right? And then I looked at it again and I reviewed it this morning again. Let's look at it. Anger. Anger is a normal part of the Christian life. It's a normal part of the Christian life. One commentator says that righteous indignation is holy anger against sin. We need to feed anger as Christians, or feel anger as Christians. If we're indifferent to injustice, then evil will prevail. We should hate sin like God hates sin. We should hate sin like God hates sin. And so what does that look like for you and I? It means that we are angry when we learn That 125,000 babies are slaughtered in the womb all around the world daily. You say, "That's, that's a political issue. No, it's not. It's a theological issue. When we learn about abortions that are happening by the thousands every day, we are angry. We should be angry when we hear about the rise of human trafficking in the world. I mentioned the book that I read several years ago. It's a, it's a novel. Some of you are wondering, it's a novel? How, what's that? The back story is that an attorney has a wife who learned about the, the sex trade industry in Thailand. And she said to her husband, who had a gift for writing, she says, Honey, I think you need to write a novel about that hideous evil, the sex trade industry that's happening right this very moment in Thailand. And so he thought about it name of the author is Corbin Addison, by the way. And so Mr. Addison got on a plane and he went to Thailand. And he researched firsthand what was going on in that country. And he wrote a book that it is is an absolutely tremendous book. And when I got done, I was angry. Why? Because children and women are being exploited and used and treated like garbage. We should be angry when we learn that there are 20 to 30 million slaves in the world today. Isn't that a shock? You think about that. You think, wait a minute, slavery, that that was a couple hundred years ago in America. Yeah, but there are still 20 to thirty million slaves in the world today. That should anger us. According to the U.S. State Department, 600 to 800,000 people are trafficked across international borders every year of which 80% are female and half are children. And of the 600 to 800,000, some are numbered just north of where we sit today as they come across the border. And are trafficked back and forth. It's happening right under our noses. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, A failure to react with indignation and anger against sin and evil is always a sign of moral decadence and of godlessness and irreligion. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote those words back in 1982. I want you to think about this because basically what he says is if we turn a, a deaf ear, if we, if we don't want to look at the evil that's happening in our culture and we're not angered by it, he says that is a sign of moral decadence. And it starts here in the church of Jesus Christ. Indeed, this is a serious, serious command. But I want to move forward with with you and also look at verse 26. And I want you to see that we not only have serious commands, but there is a sober command. The sober command, once again, is also found in verse 26. And here's what Paul says. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, Paul the Apostle gives a, a practical command that will help to keep our anger in check. And on, if you might... Put it this way, on a proper trajectory, here's what he says, never, never, never go to sleep with unresolved anger. Never go to sleep with unresolved anger. So husbands and wives, this is one thing that Jareen and I review with every couple we work with in premarital counseling. To the husband, you will get mad at your wife. No, I won't. I love her. We're so in love, Pastor. Yeah, get ready. It's coming, right? Or to the wife, oh no, oh Pastor, you say like my husband he's gonna be my husband. I No, you're gonna be chapped at him pretty soon, right? Y'all y'all laughing because you know what's happened, right? This is the principle. Don't ever close your eyes until that unresolved anger is dealt with. John Piper says something that I I, I find Not only amusing, but it just cracked me up. Don't go to sleep with unresolved anger. Piper says, This does not mean that Eskimos at the North Pole may hold a grudge for six months while the sun is still up. Are you with me? Or that natives at the equator may hold a grudge for 12 hours. It means, Piper says, that anger for all its possible legitimacy is a dangerous emotion and should not be nurtured into a grudge. He says, there are good grounds for getting angry, but there are no grounds for holding grudges. Did you hear those words? There are good grounds for getting angry. And some of you have experienced things in your life over the last weeks or months or years. And you are justified to be angry. But you are never justified in holding a grudge. And so we never cross the line by allowing even biblical anger to turn into bitterness. Which I've defined as anger that lasts a long time. This is a sober command. Finally, in verse 27, verse 27, we see a strategic command. And Paul says it like this, and give no opportunity to the devil. The reason I label this as a strategic command is this. If if we fail to obey the imperatives in verse 26, it will always lead to disaster. That is to say, if we disobey God in this matter, it will lead to disaster. When we let the sun go down on our anger, what do we do? We just open the door to to the devil. So husbands, if you get mad at your wife and you have a disagreement with your wife, if you have a disagreement with your children or someone at your place where you work, to go to bed that night, to let the sun go down on your anger is like opening your bedroom window and allowing the devil to come in and wreak havoc in your life. It's what I like to refer to as satanic opportunity. Satanic opportunity. Here's what it does. It establishes pride in the heart. When you go to bed and let the sun go down in your anger, you you establish pride in your heart and you say something like this, I am right about this. I am justified in my anger. They need to come and apologize. No, don't let the sun go down in your anger. There's a second thing that happens It establishes a pattern of carnality. It establishes a pattern where I'm right and everyone else is wrong. Number three, it establishes a priority for selfish agendas. Number four, it establishes a predictable course of self-imposed retribution. What do I mean? Instead of trusting God to remedy a situation, instead of trusting God to judge the sinner Who wounded you? You become the self imposed judge and jury. And finally, the satanic opportunity, it establishes a trajectory away from the cross and away from the gospel. One writer says that all sin will be avenged severely and thoroughly and justly, either in hell. Or at the cross. The sins of the unrepentant will be judged in hell. The sins of the repentant were avenged on the cross. And so, my friends, for the person who hurt you, for the person who betrayed you, for the person who backbit against you, for the person who punched you in the nose in the third grade, what do we know? That sin has either been avenged on the cross or God will avenge that sin one day. These are the imperatives. These are the the commands that Paul offers every Christ follower in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. And we could sum all this discussion up by saying this. The truth point is that God is calling people to have controlled emotions. Now, I want to close this morning before we come to the Lord's table by having you wrestle with one more question. And the question is, why, why do I struggle with anger? Rather, why do I struggle with sinful anger? And the answer is that because my needs were not met, my schedule was not considered, my feelings were not validated. My ego was not considered. My thoughts were not vindicated. We struggle with anger because simply put, I don't get my way. And so I want to apply just for a moment what we have studied this morning in verses 26 and 27 this is not in your notes, but I would would encourage you and challenge you to take a piece of paper and to jot these things down and to either put it on your refrigerator, put it on your nightstand, put it in your car, put it in your Bible. And if you struggle, like I think many, if not most Christians do, with sinful anger, because we live in a fallen world, these five principles will help you keep these things in check and have controlled emotions. Number one. When anger arises in your heart, I want to encourage you to rest. When anger rises in your heart, I want to encourage you to rest. What do I mean? You ask, and you all know when it happens, right? You start going, you 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 clench your fists. Everyone manifests differently, right? Some people sweat. Some people's eyes kind of kind of glare. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Some people's eyes cross, right? Ooh, wow. He's really struggling, right? When you feel that sinful anger rise in your heart, we need to rest and ask, is is this anger I'm experiencing right now, is this righteous anger or is it sinful anger? Does this anger please the Lord or has it crossed the line into the territory of sinful anger? So we rest. Number two, recognize. Recognize something. Recognize that sinful anger is grounded in unbelief. See to it, brothers. The writer of Hebrews says that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Whenever we have sinful anger, we struggle with unbelief because we're we're not believing that God will hand out justice to the person who deserves it. Sinful anger seeks revenge. Sinful anger seeks retribution. Sinful anger seeks justice on my terms. And so we recognize number 3. When you come to this point, now you've realized that you're wrestling with sinful anger, you need to repent. You you take your sin to the cross and I'm convinced that if more believers would walk through this process, rest, recognize, and repent, wouldn't the world be a nicer place? Where we, we, we realize that we have sinned against God, we have sinned against our brother or our friend or our wife or whoever it might be. We take it to the cross, we, we confess it to a holy God, and we say, God, will you forgive me? And if you have expressed sinful anger to someone else, you confess it to that person. The way I like to put it is, horizontally, you deal with the person. Vertically, you deal with God. And you remember 1 John 1.9. If you confess your sins, that God is faithful and righteous to cleanse you of your sins, He will take that sin away. Number four resolve. Now that you've repented of your sinful anger, you resolve to move forward with controlled emotions. We are called to as Paul says in Galatians 5:16, to walk according to the Spirit so that we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Finally, we realize we realize that the remedy for sinful anger is not Dr. Phil. We realize that the remedy for sinful anger is not Oprah. We realize that the remedy for sinful anger is is not some help help self-help book or psychology book. We realize that the that the remedy for sinful anger is the gospel. The gospel tells us that Jesus died for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. And that includes all the anger that I have expressed in my life, both expressed and passive anger held in. And because we live in a fallen world, here's what we understand. We understand that when we get to the realized step, the reason I did the graphic this way is because then we're going to do it again, probably tomorrow. And probably the next day. We we are very slow learners, are we not? But we, as a group of Christ followers, are on a path. We are marching toward the celestial city. And what's going to happen? God promises that he will conform all of his people to the image of Christ. This is not a maybe. This is not a might. This is not if you're a good little boy. This is not if you're a good little girl. Romans chapter 8 promises. He will conform each and every one of his people to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, where we will come face to face with him in glory. And so God is calling his people to be a people who have controlled emotions. May we Put on the new self as Ephesians 424 says created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. May we live together in the city of God in the way that he intends, not in the way that we intend. May we together be a people of controlled emotions. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the challenge this morning. It's not only a challenge for the the people here in these pews. It's a challenge for me as well. So, God, may you enable us by your grace to be a people who have controlled emotions. God, I pray that we would obey this imperative in verse 26, that we would be angry and sin not. That we would steer clear from any unbiblical anger or sinful anger. But when there is an injustice, that it would... Make us angry when we learn about aborted children around the world, that it would make us angry. When we learn about the the sex trade industry, prostitution industry, that it would make us angry. When we learn that there are those who have been cheated in the business world, that that would make us angry. And that we would have proper and controlled emotions, that we would live according to the Holy Spirit that we would walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. Thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for delivering us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And one day, as we say so often around here, we will be delivered from sin's very presence. Now, as we come to the table, may our hearts be right before you, right before one another. May we remember that the, the juice that we drink is just a a, remembering, a a remembrance of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the bread points to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we partake of these things until he comes. And thank you, Jesus, for the mighty promise that you will come soon to take the church to, to reign with you for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.